What is happening, everybody? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, and this is episode 227. Now, uh, I don't know if you noticed, you probably didn't notice, you probably shouldn't have noticed because you actually have a life and you're not waiting around every Thursday for the podcast to drop, but we did not have an episode last week. I totally plan to have that. But last week, I had zero voice. Like, literally, I woke up on Monday of last week and went to say good morning to my family, and nothing came out. Like, there was zero voice, right? Uh, So I'm like, okay, maybe it'll come back by Wednesday when I normally record. Nothing. Went all the way into Sunday, spoke on Sunday, barely could get through that. It was like I was cotton mouth and horsed out and everything else and barely kind of gnawed our way to the end of that talk and then really had a shot voice again all the way until today. And it's still not great. You'll kind of hear like there's something living inside Matt's head or throat. It's like aliens or something uh, that's taken over. Uh, but at least I have enough voice to where I'm not going to, over the course of the podcast, clear my throat 20 times because most people listen to the podcast. And so you got those earbuds right in your ears. And then to have some guy that's just like, you know, letting you know that there is a phlegm monster inside his body not pleasant to listen to. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to push this off. And so we're finally getting back around to it this week uh, and kind of this continuing restructuring series, right? You know, one of the things I kind of talked about in the last episode is that we, we spent a long haul amount of time in kind of this analysis phase, right? Whether we want to call that a deconstruction phase or we want to call it an analysis phase or we want to call it the highlighting, uh, the pitfalls that are kind of existent in our American Christian landscape. This series is really about saying, how do we how do we take Jesus seriously and we get back to the purity of what a Jesus-centered life is going to look like? And so you know, part of doing that is kind of saying like, we're still identifying the ways that that quest gets um, challenged or sometimes we're tempted to have that quest get hijacked by other things. You know, one of the hardest things I think about the Christian faith is that there are plenty of good things that can rob us from godly things. Uh, and because they're good things, we go, well, but they're good, right? And and, and so if it's good, how can it be bad? And yet, even I think as you read through the Gospels, you know, one of the things that's always an interesting dynamic is that the religious leadership of Israel oftentimes was fighting for what they perceived to be good things or moral things or noble things, but they were, in their mind, good things that robbed from godly things, and therefore it actually made them bad things, right? So, there's this weird dynamic that we're always trying to navigate, which is I want to get to the centrality of Jesus. I want to get to the purity of what it was he represented, what it was he was communicating, what the gospel of the kingdom is and how the gospel of the kingdom is something set in juxtaposition to like the law of Moses and the prophets of the Old Testament. Because you'll see this kind of comparative thing on the lips of Jesus a lot. It's like, you know, this came through Moses, but then I come with grace and truth. Or, you know, here's the issue of the law and the prophets, but that's different than the the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom. And so there's this kingdom thing that is different than the Old Testament thing. There's this kingdom thing that conducts itself in a way that's upside down and backwards from a lot of what you see in the Old Testament, which is why Paul is always saying uh, the law leads to death, 
but Jesus leads to life, right? So there, it's not that the law was bad. It's just the law was meant to say you have a need. It wasn't meant to rescue you in any way, but we sometimes get kind of tempted back to that or whatever else. And so, um, we're trying to get to that, that thing of like, okay, what's, what's the Jesus saturated Jesus, um, like, uh, just, uh, craving, longing, needing, wanting thing? What's that really look like and how does it flesh itself out? And again, what are the things that sometimes can tend to kind of hijack that or whatever else? And so that's kind of what we're looking at. And um, the topic of the day, we're going to go a couple of different places, I think, in this one. Um, But but again, I'm I'm trying to zero in on, you know, what it's going to take for us to do this. And, and so hopefully these part one, part two, part three, whatever, they're, they're meant to be like a Voltron, right? They're meant to bolt together so they don't stand alone, but rather because we, we kind of dealt with part one. Now it kind of bleeds into part two and how part one is to be informing the stuff of part two. And then hopefully down the road we'll go, right? So that's kind of the heart. And so what I want to talk about today is the idea of like, in some ways you see this in, in, James's letter where he talks about, you know, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works, right? This idea that our deeds matter, uh, that it's not just that we have statements of faith, but we're supposed to have actions of faith. And it seems that when I read through the New Testament, uh, what Jesus centers on and the epistle writer center on and the and John, the writer of Revelation centers on is that what Jesus uses the assessment tool, um, I mean, Matthew 25 really highlights this, is he's not looking saying, did you make statements of faith about me? Did you make statements of belief in me? But rather, did you have actions in your life that are representative of the faith that you claim. Because if we claim faith, but we don't have actions that are connected to that faith, then what we're having is statements, but they they're, they're, they don't have any meat on the bones of the statement, you know, because like statements are easy. Beliefs are kind of easy. Um, creeds are easy. To be creedal and confess a creed is easy. There, there's there's no skin in the game with words often, which is, I think, even why James is like, do yourself a favor, don't talk much, right? Um, and so, but, but our actions prove the level of our faith, that we so believe this message, we so believe this Jesus, that we're willing to do what he calls us to do. And we know that for him, the way he's measuring our faith is by our deeds. He's not measuring our faith by our statements or even our sense of, I have deep convictions about my statements because of our actions and our lifestyle doesn't play out in, in uh, the idea that our, our, our faith is proven by our activity. Then the question becomes, what is really the essence of our faith, right? So I want to be talking about that. And, and I want to talk about this at a couple of different, like I said, levels in all of this, because I think there's kind of two things in play. I think maybe there's even three, but I think there's one, which is for us as uh, evangelical Protestants, I think we have a certain uh, unique theological core 
that I want to talk about for a second, which is, you know, we believe in this idea. And for some of you, you're going to be like, okay, this is getting into Theo speak too much. I, you know, potentially, but I'll explain it. But we have this idea that we believe that we are justified by grace through faith alone. So it's not by our works. It's not by our deeds. It's not anything like that. We simply raise a hand, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, make a statement. I believe in Jesus. And we go, you're saved. You're heaven bound. That's uh, irreversible at that point. And so that's the, the doctrinal component. We go, we really believe in that where maybe the Catholics go, well, it's faith and your activities and, and some outcroppings of, of Christian religion would even put it even heavier into, you no, know, you really have to prove your salvation by your deeds and everything else. And you're not really saved unless you have deeds that save you. And that, you know, you can have a kind of a spectrum on that, but, but we tend to land to this. There's this moment of justification and you are forever secure in your salvation in Christ. So like that's one component uh, that we we tend to, to kind of look at there, right? And so we get a little nervous when we start to talk about then the issue of, of deeds, right? But we go, no, but true faith then results in works or fruits or activity or whatever else. But then the next part of that is which deeds or activities – um, are the deeds that Jesus is caring about and are, are we pursuing the, the same deeds that he cares about or are we pursuing deeds that have become popularized in our evangelicalism and the metrics that we use for a faithful Christian versus a less faithful Christian, are they in alignment with the priorities that Jesus has, right? So kind of looking at it that way. And then maybe the third arm of this is this idea that says, and it's linked to the first one where we go, man, I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved by my works. There's this weird thing repeatedly in the New Testament that says, yeah, but Jesus mostly will assess you in the end based on what you did, not what you said, or how you actually lived out the conviction of your faith with your actions. And you trusted his counterintuitive upside down backwards way, even though it seems super weird to do in a, in a, dog eat dog gritty world you know like you said i know it's backwards but i believe jesus so much i'm going to do the backwards thing anyway if the deeds that he calls us to are backwards type steeds i did that even though it looked dumb that's what he's going to assess in the end right so i'm trying to look at that whole spread and hopefully you're able to track with all of that but those are kind of the three components because we think we're or because we know i mean this, this i believe this to be true we're saved by grace and not by works my thought with that is sometimes we just kind of go, so how much do my deeds really matter? And Jesus says, well, I pretty much assess you completely on your deeds in the end. And I'm going to read the verses for that here in a second. But then in the middle of that, it's, and there are some deeds that matter to him that sometimes maybe don't matter as much to us, or we even downplay. And then there are other deeds that we upplay that he goes, ah, that is not what I said is important to me, right? So that's this idea of then of saying, hey, we want to talk about the fact that it's deeds over creeds and it's about actions of faith or actions that flow out of faith more than it's just statements of faith or words of faith or testimonies of I have faith. If our lives don't follow up on that, then is it really faith that we're claiming or is it just platitudes or feel-goodisms or things that are easy to say, like making promises that maybe don't always have the follow through that we want. And all of that comes back to then what my heart and agenda is, which is I think the world desperately uh, is needing to see, and I think even many people are longing to see the authentic Jesus 
in his people. Um, I, I'm becoming more convicted by the the idea, or not, not convicted probably isn't the right word. I'm becoming compelled by the idea, again, that that Paul had the courage to say, everybody, look at me. Watch my life. You're going to see Jesus really clearly if you watch my life. And and for me, that's compelling because I go, that means it's possible. I, I think there's this tendency we have. We go, well, we're all human. We're all going to make mistakes for 2,000 years. Humans have been just human. And and I, I it just seems like surrender. You know what I mean? Like, why do we just surrender to like, ah, we're all just going to kind of blow it and the world just has to cope with our hypocrisy or our inconsistency or whatever else. When I'm like, but it seems like Paul was like, man, when you live in the spirit, you walk in the spirit, you seek out the spirit, you're you're passionate about connecting with the divine power source, right? More than saying, I'm asking the book to be the power source. I'm going to God who's the power source. That somehow in that, there is this unlocking of, of power and blessing and transformation and the the, the the nature of a compelling life that then the world looks and goes, there's something about that that's just so undeniable. I want to know about that more. There's a fortitude in you. There's a peace in you. There's a joy in you. There's a long suffering in you because the fruit of the spirit is just gushing out of us. And it's unstoppable because it's not us trying to be loving, joy-filled, peaceful, patient, kind. It's the spirit's like, no, there's I'm jamming this through your life. And then the world sees that. And, and and let me give you a weird parallel to this where I, I keep – I'm looking for like pieces of the evidence of this thing even in the modern context. And, and I was thinking about the charismatic movement, which is interesting because what my heart is not in this podcast and where I don't seem to land is a charismatic type Christian. I'm, you know, that doesn't seem to be the space that I inhabit. I support the gifts for today. That's true, but I don't seem to have any of those unique – supernatural type gifts that I've ever really had manifest in my life necessarily. But I, I think the Bible substantiate that those things didn't end in the first or second or third century. I, I, I think that's doing damage to the Bible to say they did. Um, I think that's a, it's more of a, the lack of experience driving that opinion than it is the scriptures driving that theologically sidebar for that. Um, but I was thinking about the fact that it's been for a while now that the charismatic church is like the 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 most um uh, I don't want to use the word successful the most fruitful when it comes to evangelism right now in the world like it's the fastest growing it's the fastest spreading it's the one that's seeing the most people come to Christ and and I was like why and I don't mean that I mean that in a positive like I go what what's the thing I want to learn from this right because what's true to the charismatic movement is that there can be abuses there can be misuses there can be overselling it there can be the um kind of prosperity thing there can be the hype thing you know I mean like we've seen that with some of the the recent scandals with like Hillsong and things like that and and, and then on top of it that you have this, this movement where it's claiming a lot of supernatural things, even though there's increasingly kind of more of a secularized view of the world in the West. Uh, and like, you know, come on, miracles don't really happen. And a cynicism about those kinds of supernatural claims. So why is it reaching so many people for Christ in light of maybe even those potential weaknesses? And and as I was trying to analyze it more, I, I, I thought even for its potential flaws, what is embedded into the charismatic identity is we are seeking the Holy Spirit out in a determined way. So, you know, if there's any great default that it has, 
It's saying, we need you, Holy Spirit, to fill us and to reach others. And there's like this uh, a dogmatism that drives toward the Holy Spirit to see him unlocked, unleashed in the lives of his people in his church. And then from that, there is a lot more revival that happens there where like, my very particular camp, I'm a little bit more in the reformed, uh, let's study the Bible, let's, you know, kind of really be centered on the Bible. And we're the ones that are not seeing a lot of people come to Christ. Uh, we're not necessarily always the greatest in the realm of evangelism. And the idea that we're seeing revival sometimes feels like a mixed bag. In fact, if anything, the places where we've seen some senses of revival, like Mars Hill was a good example of like, wow, that's revival. Look how God is moving on Mars Hill. And now we all kind of learn like, oh, well, there was a lot of stuff in there. Was that revival or was that the fact that there is – Again, sometimes a toxin in this whole mix, which is uh, cult of personality or charisma or or like a radical dogmatism of calling out right and wrong with an aggressiveness in such a way that people are like, man, I just like that you're bitey, you know, and I want to follow the bitey person because that seems tough, you know, or whatever else. And so I, 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 I was thinking about all of this more going back to point one or part one of the series where it's like, okay, so – you know, I, I look at then a group like the charismatic movement globally and they're they're growing pretty radically and the Holy Spirit is moving despite the weaknesses and there must be something there, right? So part of this whole thing that I'm working through is like going back again to this idea of a lot of what we're talking about then is this pursuit of God, pursuit of the Spirit, pursuit of the empowerment, pursuit of a desperation for Jesus and in that desperation, he blesses that in a really unique and, and, and tangible way. And so all the more we need to do that, but we then need to do that in relationship to this topic of how do I, how do I take the fact that I'm saved by grace, but then I'm supposed to have deeds that he's going to assess me by and that those deeds are driven by him and not by me, right? Because the deeds thing really matters to him more than just the statements I make about the gospel or theology or an affirmation of the Bible or whatever else. He, like I said, he's, he's measuring these things a little bit more differently. Even though I'm saved by grace, I still have to give an account to these things. Right. And, and I need to do that in light of the spirit because of the deeds he's going to ask me to do. I probably can't white knuckle on my own. Right now, maybe I'm getting ahead of things or going down weird rabbit trails at this point. So let me see if I can kind of anchor this first. The, the the first point I said about the theology and we're, we're saved by grace through faith alone, the thing I've been thinking about more, even in my own life, is that, that that is a beautiful aspect of the gospel. But I think for a long time, among pastors even, like even pastors I would probably disagree with, there has been this sense of which... But don't let that just be your fire insurance or don't just hide behind the once saved, always saved, a prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, made a confession of faith. Don't hide behind that because there, there really should be something that comes from that, right? So I was thinking about that more and just the fact that what, what Jesus and the gospel writers seem to apply is a pressure that says you were absolutely saved by grace. Absolutely. But you should long for and desire then to have a fruitful life that comes from that. 
because that seems to be really important to Jesus. Like we go, I need to prioritize in my life above all else as a follower of Jesus that I would then be living in such a way that even like John says in 1 John, that we would walk just as Christ walked, which again brings me to this idea. It says it's not impossible. Like I think we go, no, 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 no. we're just so flawed. Nobody's going to be like Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, greater things you will do than I did because I will send the helper to you. I mean, that's radical. Like I I read that in John 14 and then I see where it goes on in John 15 and 16, which is a lot what we looked at in the last series or last part of the series. And I think we go nifty not to be counted on. Like we go, it's scripture. Jesus promised it, but come on, nobody's ever going to experience that promise. Like greater things than you, not doable. And and I, I, I keep thinking there's this short changing again. Like, oh, no, 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 we're too flawed to actually lean into that promise? Or should we be saying, no, 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 that's a promise that I want to really chase down, but I know I need to chase that down, not by I'm just going to read the Bible more and go to Bible studies more and go to church more, though those are good things. I need to lean into the spirit more because like the charismatics seem to be doing that. And there is some fruitfulness coming out of that. There is some pretty amazing things happening in parts of the world in that movement, I think, because there's such a determination to rely on the power of the spirit, even in the way it comes out flawed at times, right? So um, it's going, deeds matter to Jesus. Now, why do deeds matter to Jesus? So here's some passages on this. Um, and, and, And I think these are meant to, you can look at it two ways, right? You can go, well, that's sobering, or that's troublesome. Or you go, oh, that should motivate me. So it's all about perspective, right? You know, and and since I'm trying to let this series be, let's reconstruct instead of deconstruct, hopefully we'll look at this in the positive more than the negative. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, right? That That's our aim. Whatever pleases God, whatever pleases Jesus, whatever Jesus says, yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's that thing I was talking about back when I gave the sermon on the mount. Remember that whole sermon when it's like, I'm, Moses left off here. I'm taking over here. Here's what I'm really all about. Man, that pleases me. Like that's our aim to please him. So he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body whether good or evil. So notice it doesn't say for, you know, whatever he has believed in the body. It says what he has done in the body. And it says good or evil, right? So here's that thing. You're saved by grace through faith, right? And we must give an account for everything we do in our body, whether good or evil. Not what we claim, what we believe in the body, but again, what we've done in the body, good or evil. And then Paul's immediate word after that is therefore. And so you should always ask, so what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it connects it to the previous statement. So he says, we're going to be judged, good or bad, for what we did. Therefore, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, right? And so I'm linking this going, what pleases the Lord and what persuades others And then I drive myself back to the Gospels and I go, Jesus was really persuasive. 
Jesus was really compelling. And there was things that Jesus said of himself, like I'm gentle and lowly and you will find rest for your souls. There was Jesus things that Jesus emphasized as the big idea priorities, like the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, or his words in Matthew 25 about the least of these or whatever else. And I go, that seems to please him. And the inverse, when those things aren't done, that seems to displease him. And if I'm going to be persuasive, I need to lean into the things that please him. I need to lean away from the things that don't please him. And some of the things that don't please him are religious things that we as American Christians, we have as idols that we protect and we do it in the name of Jesus, but it doesn't have much connection to Jesus. And it actually sometimes undermines Jesus. And that's that stuff we have to go, then which deeds matter and which deeds don't and which deeds do we magnify as important that he says, ah, that's not the thing. And what are the ones that we go, well, I don't really do those or I don't want to do those or I don't even agree with those. And he's like, yeah, but those are the big tier, top tier things that I care about, right? Like we're trying to figure all of that out. So Deeds done in the body, good or evil, we get assessed for. Therefore, we want to be persuasive because it pleases the Lord. How about this one in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6? It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. And it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to have clothing for herself a fine linen, bright and pure. So the image here is we as saints coming to dine with Jesus at the great marriage supper of Christ, Like right? That's the scene, right? And Revelation's got all this different imagery, but you get the idea of it. And then this is what it says about the, the linen that we're wearing. Like, well, what are our threads, right? What are our digs we wear at this feast? And, and how do you get those, the, the suit and tie, so to speak, the dress, if you will, right? It says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And here's why this is important again, and I'm going to tie it back to theological point one and then how it ties into this point three and a little bit of the middle of point two. When we say we're saved by grace through faith, one of the things we believe there is that we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And so he takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness but there seems to be a secondary layer of righteousness. So there's like this positional layer, and then there's this measured layer, like this. Like, in other words, it doesn't say the fine linen is the righteousness of Christ that clothes you. Revelation earlier talks about a different variation of that, that we are washed in the blood of the lamb and that kind of thing. Here, it's flipping the script a little bit and saying the your righteous deeds are the condition by which you are clothed, right? So it's not his righteousness to you. It's your righteous deeds that clothes you. So both are true. Jesus saves you and your deeds play a major, major role, like a super major role based on what we're seeing here plays a major, major role in the end. Now, again, what those deeds are that are important, we'll get to that here at the tail end, right? Because that's the thing that this podcast is really kind of about, but I want to deal with the bookends. So deeds matter. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, he says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he or she has done. Again, not believed, but done. And, and I think what it is, is because when Jesus thinks of faith or Paul thinks of faith or the New Testament writers think of faith, they don't see it as like um, an intellectual 
concept. This is, I think, sometimes what we tend to do in the post-Enlightenment West. We, we, we kind of take things and we go, these are creedal, these are statements, these are belief structures. And I, I think that would have been pretty foreign to, to first century Christianity and Judaism coming into Christianity. They wouldn't have seen it as a creedal thing. They, they would have seen it as, oh, you mean because you, you believe a thing, you, you have these actions to flow out of it, which is therefore to them, faith is about your deeds. Faith is not about your statements. Not that I'm saying there aren't statements to be made in faith or belief systems inside faith. Like I believe Jesus is God. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he sent the Holy Spirit to empower me. Therefore, because I believe that I'm leaning hard into all these, these things that I'm called to in my faith, because even though they seem upside down and backwards and sacrificial, and I'm putting myself out there for life and limb to do it, and I'm denying myself and taking on my cross and following him daily and all that, I so am certain about what Jesus talked about. Why wouldn't I do this? You know, why wouldn't this be true to my life? You know, why wouldn't I literally be the servant of the world? Why wouldn't it be about them and not me? You know, like, because that's what he called me to. Like the, the greatest is the least of all. It's the servant of everybody that sits at the table next to him in the end. Like I so believe that there's a real table at the end. I really sit next to him. I really believe there's a reward to be found. This life, I will throw it all on the line and be like him because there is a real reward I'm really certain of. And in that, maybe another layer is if we say, I believe there's a real hell, then what I do every single day, how I model Jesus matters. And if I'm not, trying to figure out how to model him every day in a compelling way so lost people can see the real Jesus. Do I even really believe there's a hell? Like all that kind of starts to flood in. It's like where our convictions lie are going to be proven by what we do, right? So what is done matters, right? I even think about First Peter here. First Peter chapter one. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action to be sober minded. Set your hope fully on the graces that to be the grace that's to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As an obedient child, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And and then it goes on into chapter two and chapter three, and, and he starts talking about what that means is certain deeds. And then these deeds you see are about, you know, supporting civil authorities. These deeds are about living a life that is humble and having a reason for the hope that lies within you, but doing it with grace and patience. And you're not against the world around you. You're not scolding the world around you. You're not frustrated at the world around you. There's a determination. There's a resilience. There's a long suffering. There's a peacemaking drive that is in you because you so want to be holy. And I go back to the functional definition of holiness is love displayed in mercy and justness. Holy means to be set apart, to be different, to be other than the world. There's nothing more other than the world than being uh, loving or displaying love in genuine mercy and a true sense of justness to the world around you. That is the most radical version of being uh, set apart that there can be, which is why Jesus pushed that so heavily. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. That's that's true holiness. God is holy in that he loved us so much he sent his son for us. And he loved us so much in sending his son that his son's like, man, I'll take on human form. We'll go from this idea that the the, the holy of holies, like think about how radical this is, how, how like 
servanthood oriented. The holiness of God is so potent in love. He reduces himself down for us to this level. Picture this. In the Old Testament, God's presence dwells at the temple in the Holy of Holies. Only one day a year, one dude in the whole world, if he's pure enough, can walk into there for a very limited snippet amount of time, and he may or may not die depending, uh, and that was the best anybody could ever do to be in the presence of God. So the standard of God was like, who can be in my presence? Only one dude, one time a year, one day, one little micro bit of time. Better tie a rope around him because he might drop dead in there from my, from my, just the, the, the glory of my power. You can't be in my presence and live kind of thing, right? That's what it is. But then God in radical holiness, love displayed in true mercy and justness says, you know what? I'll take on human form and I'll come into the world. And I won't just come to the world and I'll be a dude that sits on a throne with a sword and a scepter and everything else, but rather I'm going to come and I'm going to be born to a poor family in the divey town and I'm going to hang out with the riffraff and I'm going to be a friend of sinners and I'm going to let a hooker wash my feet with her hair, though she's unclean, and I will let an unclean leper touch me and I'll let a woman with a blood flow touch me, even though all of these things are violations of the Old Testament law. I will give access to sinners in a way that is radical. Old Testament, you can only go through the veil one person once a year for this little snippet. Da, 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 da. And now God says, the least of the least can approach me and touch me and stare me straight in the face. And as they do, I'm there to serve them, not cook them, kill them, serve them. I mean, think about the dude. Remember when the ark was going to fall off the cart and the dude put up his hand and was struck dead? For touching, because it's like, whoa, you you can't touch that. That's like touching the presence of God. And even though your intentions were right, you died. Well, now here's here's a hooker touching him, and it's totally okay. This is a radical change in expectation and standard, right? Unapproachable, radically approachable. Right? Like all of that is kind of in there, right? And, and, and so that drives all of this as far as what does it mean to be holy. In the way that Peter's intending, well, it's to be holy in the way that Jesus displayed. It's to be holy in the way that God demonstrated, which is incredible approachableness, incredible love displayed and mercy and justness. And so all of this then begins to even give us a a triangulation of that middle part about the kinds of deeds, like the kinds of deeds are holy deeds and those holy deeds are what we see modeled in Jesus, love displayed in mercy and justice. So now I'm just beginning to repeat myself, but, but even again in, in first Peter two, you know, he's like, man, you know, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. I think sometimes people look at that and go, well, that's like lust and things like that. Well, I think the passions of our flesh are just as easily the passion for my rights, my way, my American dream, my, you know, my easy life, my good 401k, you know, I'm frustrated by governors, I'm frustrated by presidents, I'm frustrated by politicians, I'm frustrated by the economy, I'm frustrated by the Fed, I'm complaining, I'm whatever, you know, like, those are those are earthly passions. It's like, again, it, it, we're, what we tend to do is we start to want this world to be our heaven, even as Christians. We want it to kind of be our heaven. We want the good life here. And so our passions get in the way. We get frustrated by things. We're tired of things. We're sick and tired of things. We're bothered by things as opposed to we're burdened to love. We're, we're, like, that's the thing. Like, I should be so burdened to want to love 
and reach and care for and invest into the world around me, the, 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 the disbelieving around me, the wounded around me, those wounded by the believing community and want to show them something different than what they've experienced. Like all of that should be kind of driving us, right? So he's like, man, you know, don't, don't let your passions get the best of you. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil of you or against you, it's saying you're an evildoer. It says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, notice how it's grounded in deeds, not your statements, not your, um, uh, you know, confessional things or your testimonies, but, but your deeds. And what's amazing about that is they're going to say you're an evildoer, but then they see in you that you're loving them, even though they think you're an evildoer or they're critical of your faith. They're critical of your Christianity. They're critical of your moral system. And yet you just keep being relentlessly love displayed in mercy and justness. You keep relentlessly being, I keep relentlessly being, we keep relentlessly being, you know, these people that say, I'm just going to, I'm going to do the Jesus thing in this because I really believe it'll pay off. Like I'm certain that his message is what will win the world and the things that he holds most dear are, are the change agents and maybe in part why we don't see the change we'd like is because we haven't held those things dear as much as we've held, you know, the concern of the decline of morality in our culture and the decline of what we perceive to be religious liberty in our culture or whatever else. Like, like he's like, ah, you guys are missing the boat on this, right? Like there's other things that are much more compelling. It's hard to argue with when they see it in action. It's easy to argue with when they don't see it in action. So trying to get back to that, right? So Peter gets into that, you know, um, says the same stuff in chapter three, you know, turn away from evil, do good, right? Be zealous for what is good. Suffer for righteousness sake and you're going to be blessed. Don't be fearful of them. Don't be troubled, which is really important because I think in some ways they're, they're what I see within our evangelicalism is a lot of ramping up fear, you know, fear of wokeness, fear of losing our religious liberties, uh, fear of liberalism, fear of secularism, fear of our kids going to college and our colleges, you know, kind of, you know, hijacking their, their faith or whatever else. And like, sometimes we can be super motivated by fear, you know, fear that the, the government's going to come after us or whatever else. And it's like, he's like, again, why would you be motivated by fear? If, if you have real faith, then you have a conviction that my way is the best way. And oftentimes, it's actually Christians embracing persecution with joy, with courage, with calm, and with love of their persecutors that revival breaks out. But if we're trying to insulate ourselves from that and we're complaining about that, we're fearful of that, we're trying to highlight that and point that out, it's like the opposite. We're saying, I know what you said, Jesus, about persecution, resistance, and being hated, and that your Holy Spirit's going to give us the right words to say when that happens. And instead we go, no, we got to make sure that day never comes. We got to stand up against the tyranny of these things before it ever comes. And so it's like, like us trying to get in and manhandle the machine so that we don't actually have to embrace what it is he calls us to. So once again, I'm going like everything is an opportunity to display Jesus, including suffering. And that's kind of what Peter's getting at. So he says, man, do good, have this attitude. If you suffer for righteousness sake, you're going to be blessed. Don't fear, don't be troubled. But in your hearts, uh, always honor Christ the Lord as holy, which is what? Honor him as the one who displays love and mercy and justness. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone for the reason for the hope that lies in you. But again, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they can be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good than 
then because that's God's will, right? As opposed to you suffer because you earn it, because you're motivated by fear, you're motivated by wanting to criticize those who stand against you or wanting to criticize the, you know, again, kind of the secularists, the humanists, the naturalists, the atheists, the whateverists, you know, um, very different posture, right? Very, very different posture that we want to kind of talk about and look at here. So all of that comes into play with this. And so, you know, again, I go back to this idea of saying you're saved by grace, but you're saved by grace in the sense that you're saying, Jesus, I want, I want to follow you. I want to do it your way. Like this is what we're, we're all signing on board to. And I'm highlighting all of this because I, I sometimes wonder if that's what we're really taught when we sign on board, you know, like, like that, you know, cause when you read through, like, you know, right now as a church, we're going through the gospel of Luke. When you read through the gospel of Luke, like Jesus is pretty unapologetic. Like, okay, if you want to follow me, here's what it means. You're going to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, it means you want to be the servant of all. If it means you really want to follow me, here's the stuff that you, it shows you're following me. Not, not just iconically following me, but authentically following me. This is what it all kind of looks like. Right. So, and then he's like, and then in that I'm going to assess you in the end, based on all of that criteria because it's it's displaying your authenticity and your authentic faith and to see then what it is I'm calling you to do it, that isn't going to be just because again you every day wake up and say I'm by golly determined enough to do it he's like no man the only way you're going to do greater stuff than me is you're tagged into the spirit the only way you're going to be able to remain in my love and my love remain in you and you do all of this stuff is going to be my spirit is directly tethered to you. You're going to learn from me. I'm going to teach you through the spirit. I'm going to empower you, power you through the spirit, but it means you have to set your mind on the spirit. Uh, you know, Romans chapter eight, you have to walk in the spirit. Galatians chapter five, you have to be filled with the spirit. Ephesians chapter five, like, and so there, and it's, that's really hard because that's not check boxes and homework assignments and just doing a daily devotional or whatever else. There's this whole other way in which we're like, well, how do you walk in the spirit? How are you filled with the spirit? How do you set your mind on the spirit? And it's like, well, that seems to be a very immersive focus, you know, and, and we, we have to kind of feel our way toward that. We have to have a hunger toward that. We have to have a sense of, I'm not content with just kind of status quo. I want something richer and deeper and supernaturally driven in me. So I'm trying to figure that out as best as I can. And it becomes the top kind of top of the, the priority list of, I want that mastered in my life because I know if I master that thing, all this other stuff begins to flow out and naturally, because like the fruit of the spirit, for example, is not a checklist of my responsibilities. The fruit of the spirit is a byproduct of my closeness to the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. And then from that, that stuff is unstoppable in my life, right? Like that's the way it's supposed to be. But that takes a different kind of determination than I just want to go to church, give my tithe, be in a Bible study, serving kids ministry or youth ministry or setup crew or whatever, and do do my you know daily devotional and call it done. Like those things are not bad things, but those things Sometimes, again, it's like the good thing versus the godly thing. Those are good things or even good godly things, but they can almost be like, because I did those things, I'm solid. When Jesus is like, man, it's reliance on the spirit. It's dependence on the spirit. It's filling with the spirit. It's learning from the spirit. It's teaching by the spirit. It's doing greater things in me through the spirit. Like that, that's more the target of what he seeks because that's what pleases him and then helps us to be compelling, persuasive in the lives of people, not by what we say, but, but, but 
by what we inhabit, or maybe better yet, what inhabits us is kind of what does that thing, right? So that's that's the driver, right, in all of this. So then that brings me to, then what are the deeds that Jesus is pleased by that I want to seek the Spirit out so the Spirit does this stuff in me? Because again, he's assessing whether that's what took place in our lives. And, and again, the undercarriage of this, what I want to keep pushing in this is not, okay, so we all have to work harder. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is we all need to pursue more passionately. You know, like that's the thing. I, 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 I think sometimes the, the broken thing I see within our uh, evangelicalism is that we take a lot of solace in our ethics. Like if I'm moral, ethical, good marriage, good kids, I go to church, read my Bible, like, you know, like that, that's, that's solid. You know what I mean? And, and I go back to, you know, a lot of those things are not the metric Jesus uses. You know, like that you go to church is not a metric that Jesus uses. The metric Jesus uses is in the context of community, you are tenderhearted, forgiving, loving, like Colossians chapter three or like Hebrews chapter 10, you are stirring up others around you to love and good deeds. So it's not, I attend church. It's not that I have good attendance at church. It's not even that a I like I serve in some capacity at church. It's are all of those demonstrations of what it's come out in the community of faith. If that's happening, then that's the fruitfulness that he seeks. Those are the deeds that he's interested in. You know, because um, in thirty years of of ministry, I've 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 worked alongside people historically. I would not say this has been true uh, at Redemption, but historically, I've been in context and places where I've worked with people that are very committed, there every Sunday, serving in ministry, and they're total sourpusses, or they're easily agitated by things, or they're put out at half the people that they're serving alongside, or they're judgmental of a lot of people. I mean, I I struggle with the judgmental of a lot of people, and Jesus is like, those are not the deeds I'm looking for from you, Matt, because I talk about being judgmental. Matter of fact, I'll get into that in a second. And and so he's like, it's great that you're there, it's that you're there, that you're attending, you're serving, or whatever, but if you're if you're judging everybody around you, you're, that's not what I wanted you to do, you know, kind of thing. So, so again, we have to get back to what are the deeds then that he really, really cares about. Um, and this is where I take us back to like the Sermon on the Mount, which is, you know, it's my go-to every single time, right? But I think the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain are, are very helpful tools for a number of reasons. One is they're, they're, they're bite size. Like you get a good cross section of what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. The good news of the kingdom is the values of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the good news. Jesus came to bring that into the world and he came to bring that to the world through our lives. May the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is embedded in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount as our prayer. And, and it's, it really is kind of in the middle because it's trying to say like, this is how the kingdom is displayed in the world. It, the, the gospel of the kingdom is not simply Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, believe in him and be saved. That is that is like sentence one of the gospel of the kingdom because the gospel of the kingdom is much more robust for Jesus, right? The gospel of the kingdom, the good news is 
I change people to change people, you know, I, I, I change people to change the world around them. It's, you know, I'm reclaiming and, and bringing flourishing to the world and fulfilling my promise made to Abraham. I'm going to bless all the nations through the activities of my people. And therefore the way that the nations are blessed, the way that communities are changed, the way that the world is shaped, the way that the lust, lost or disbelieving are touched is through then the value system of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's why I always push us back to that or the Sermon on the Plain, because I think it's all there in a relatively small pocket. And what I find there is the toughest stuff to do, you know? So it's, it he, he, he you know, like all of that in the outline, it's interesting because in one sense, Jesus lowers certain standards like, now the most sinful person can touch God and live, right? Like, and God's there serving them in the process of, of them touching him. Like, that's pretty radical. That's a lowering standard. But but also, he's also upping the standard and he's saying what God cares about is heart. What God cares about is reliance on him, not just codifying the rules, but real reliance on him and doing things backwards, doing things different. So, like, he's like, you want to really be happy? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? Or Luke just simply says, blessed are those who po- are poor, right? Like, poverty, like, makes you rely on God in a way that wealth doesn't, you know? Like, we, for the community that we live in here, for most of our listeners, it's going to be here in the Pacific Northwest or whatever else, among the most um, impoverished of our listeners, you're still in the top 10% globally, and historically, like you're the richest in human history and you're in the top 10%. Like, you know, and, and so for us, you know, we actually, if anything, sometimes our fear is like, we're going to lose our money. We're going to lose our job. We're not going to have enough. The economy's going to go bad or whatever else, you know, but she's like, you know, poverty makes you dependent, like blessed are the poor in Luke or blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew. So like, that's the place where to go. Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the meek, strength under control. When you want to criticize, want to complain, want to gripe, want to moan, want to be fearful, strength under control is meekness. You know what I mean? Or blessed are the pure in heart, not simply pure in action, but pure in heart. So there's this whole beautiful list or blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake or for the sake of true justness, right? Like that's what it is. And then in that, he's like, embrace it, celebrate it. Like so upside down and backwards, you know? And then it just continues to go on. Your light, your salt, be like that. So people can see your what? Your good deeds, and glorify God in heaven so your actions matter. And then it just goes all the way through the Sermon on the Mountain. Talks about all these counterintuitive things, you know, as far as reconciling with people that have wronged you or you have wronged. Like, don't even go to church on Sunday unless you first reconciled, taken ownership of what you've done or forgiven them for what they've done. Like, that's in there, you know. And, you know, not trying to make others behave for our thought lives, but getting control of our own thought lives and treating our marriages with dignity and respect and value and, you know, then keeping our word and turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. You know, those ones I really like because I think those are the toughest ones, especially in American culture where we're taught like, hey, man, you know, you counter sue, you know, or you preemptively sue. Like this idea of somebody sues you and they go for one thing and you give them two. We think that's silly. Or even recently at... uh Charlie Kirk's kind of conservative think tank meeting group. Um, I know um, Donald Trump Jr. was there and he's like, you know, I know the Bible says turn the other cheek, but that's not getting us anywhere. We we need to actually not abide by that concept anymore. And it was like, 
you know, people are like, yeah, that's right. We don't need to turn the other cheek. And, and I thought, how strange. It's like, here's all these Christians that are actually probably thinking like, yeah, we can't keep turning the other cheek politically and get things done. We need to actually kind of counterpunch, man. And so, but Jesus is like, no, this is how I get business done. These are the deeds that bring me pleasure. You know, these are the things I love. When you love your enemy, do good to your enemy, pray for your enemy, as opposed to criticize your enemy and put snarky things on Facebook or Twitter about how, you know, you, you don't like this person or that person or these people are nuts or this group is crazy or, you know, these people are immoral. Like the world sees that and they're like, that's how you feel about us. You, you don't love us. You're sickened by us. You're irritated by us. You're agitated by us or whatever else. But Jesus is like, no, this is the way you change the world, man. Loving enemies changes the world. And it just goes all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, right? And then you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and here again, Jesus is saying, you know what? This is hard. This is a narrow way. Like that passage about the narrow way, because he just wraps up by saying, here's the bottom line. You want to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the golden rule. And then he says, this way is hard and difficult and narrow. And I think we sometimes kind of jerk that verse out of its context and we go, well, the gospel is a narrow way. But that's not the context of the statement. The statement is all about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, doing what brings Jesus pleasure, the stuff that he says, these are the deeds I measure in the end. They're very hard. And we will try to excuse those away often because they're hard. We would rather just default to moralism. We'd rather default to criticism. We'd rather default to judgment of the world around us or even judgment of one another in ways that are self-righteous. That's our default. And Jesus is like, but that doesn't bring me pleasure. Now, yes, it's going to be hard, but don't worry. That's why I gave you the Holy Spirit. So you could do this thing. You just got to rely on him a lot. And then he says, and here's the proof. It's the fruit. He says, beware of false teachers, right? And you're going to know them by their fruit. And our tendency is to go, well, false teachers are like the Mormons. False teachers are like those who water down the Bible. I don't think that's Jesus's focus. I think Jesus's focus is the false teachers are the ones who claim the Bible but don't really want to do the Sermon on the Mount because that was certainly the religious leadership that constantly was snipping and biting at the heels of Jesus, right? Like they believed the Bible. They believed in God. They thought they were really good people. They were incredibly moral by a lot of standards, but they were false teachers because what Jesus was promoting, they didn't want to do, you know? Even it's interesting when Paul writes about itching ears in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we tend to go, well, that's Again, you know, people that water down the Bible and, and they're, you know, the, the, the more liberal kind of theological people or whatever else. But what Timothy was dealing with was pretty hefty rule keepers. Like you read First Timothy chapter 4 and they were saying, hey, these foods are bad and you're sinful if you eat them. Hey, sex is so sinful. Don't even get married because marriage leads to sex. I mean, super rule keepers. And there Paul says, those are doctrines of demons. But the doctrines of demons weren't liberalism and looseness. It was legalism and tightness. And sometimes people go, that's what I want to hear. I take comfort in rules. I take comfort in dogmatism. I take comfort in legalism. I take comfort in moral externalism. And that is a doctrine of demons and just as sinister as anything else, right? So Jesus is like, no, 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 the false teachers go more than one way and don't just think that false teachers are always this way. They can also be that way, but the real proof is fruit. And what's the fruit, the deeds, whatever? Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's all a cohesive message there, right? And, and that's what we want to honor. 
or even like Matthew 25, you know, in the end, Jesus is like, all right, here's how I'm going to assess this thing. You know, uh, I was in the world. I was in the world with the person that was struggling with drugs. I was in the world with the person that was having a lot of promiscuous sex. I was in the world with the person that was providing abortions. I was in the world because again, God's image rests in all. And he's in the least of these, right? So they were in prison for a set of reasons. Don't just assume that they were in prison because they were good people that got treated badly. No, I was in prison maybe for really terrible reasons. I molested a kid. I was in prison because I broke the law. I was in prison for whatever. But but he's like, you know, I was all of these things. I was naked. I was poor, whatever. I was in them. And And if you did it to them, you did it to me. And if you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. So he says, here's the deeds I care about. It's it's that you're extending love and mercy and justness to all people, all people. You're looking at all people with a broken heartedness. You're looking at all people with a desperation for them to find life and healing and wholeness. And, 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 and you want to just do everything you can to embody that thing that shows that like that. He goes, that's, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I value. Again, that's what brings me pleasure and makes you persuasive, you know, and compelling. And in that, he does say some sharp stuff, you know, he's like, Hey man, this is how I'm looking at this. This is sheep versus goats, you know? And he's saying this all to people who are following him at that point, like Matthew 25, his audience in, in large part is, the people following him. Matthew writes that for people that are wanting to follow Jesus. Matthew is for us, right? Matthew is not for disbelieving people directly. Disbelieving people can read Matthew and come to Jesus, but Matthew is for us. Mark is for us. Luke, John is for us. And in there, he's trying to say, here's a lot of warnings that hopefully should inspire you to what matters most, which deeds, duties, and actions bring him the greatest pleasure, right? So he says, but the false teachers will put things in our way. And some of that's going to be theological moralism or religious moralism or whatever else. And it it excuses away the things of the Sermon on the Mount where we go, you know, I don't have to love my enemies. Instead, I'm called to openly criticize my enemies. Um, I don't need to turn the other cheek. I need to get a lawyer. Um, I, I, I don't need to go the extra mile when somebody makes a demand of me because I have, again, I'm, I'm an American. I have my freedoms and liberties and nobody can tell me what to do. Don't tread on me. Like, like all of those kinds of things that get held dear by us, um, are very counter Jesus and very counter the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is where, again, we're trying to extract and understand and then identify here's what he thinks is most important. Here's the things that are fine, but not most important. And we want to make sure we get to those more, most important things, right? That's where we build. So we go, yep, I'm saved by grace. But I'm if, if saved by grace is I believe you, Jesus. And by I believe you is I have so much faith in you. I'm willing to do your counterintuitive upside down and backwards thing. And I believe it's best. And I believe I'll have joy and fulfillment and peace and purpose in that. And I believe it's the best way to reach people. And I believe you'll reach people when I do that. And when I'm leaning hard into your Holy Spirit and I'm sacrificial and selfless and I'm willing to, as Paul says, die daily so that you can live thoroughly through me. Um, that's a powerful thing. That's a really powerful thing. 
And that's the thing that Jesus seeks of us and offers to us and wants to do through us. And I believe if we grab this, do this, live this, want this, or driven for this, or determined unto this, not out of legalism, not out of a sense of dutifulness, but rather delight because we then have pleasure as we bring him pleasure, as we pursue his pleasures, we find his joy in us. When all of that happens, that is a very compelling, unstoppable, and 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 frankly, unnecessary element in our world. And I think that's what makes us truly unleashed everyday missionaries.